today on CityCast Salt Lake, I'm going to make a confession. I don't totally understand the terms of my rental agreement for my apartment. Sure, I technically read it. We all do. I know the key dates and the amounts, but the fine print? Absolutely not. And can you blame me? By the time Salt Lake renters get a lease in hand, you are exhausted from the search, lucky to find someplace you can afford, and sitting with a deep understanding of how replaceable you are as a tenant. So for today's show, we're doing a close reading of my lease with Marcus Deegan, an attorney with the evictions nonprofit People's Legal Aid. And if you're a renter, you might want to take notes on this one because there's a good chance we both have the same boilerplate lease from the Utah Apartments Association. It's Thursday, March 24th, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Marcus, welcome to CityCast Salt Lake. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm grateful for your time. Let's get into it. We are both looking at actually my lease agreement. <laughs> Shout out to my landlords. Now, this this conversation is not covered by lawyer-client confidentiality. Okay. Yep. Let's get Just that out of the way. Aware, but I'm still happy to talk. Perfect. When I called you up, the thing I said to you was, if I as a friend came to you and said I signed this lease and you were like okay, I get that you skimmed this, but there are a couple clauses you probably should be really aware of. What would they be? Absolutely. And and in fairness to you, a great many uh, lease agreements floating around out there, uh, particularly in our beloved state of Utah, are viciously over-lawyered documents. Mm. So I think it is worth taking the time to clarify this a little. So first of all, one thing to note is, uh, you know, if I was giving a top list of my recommended guidance for renting in the state of Utah is that the vast, vast, vast majority of lease agreements floating around out there say that you are you and your roommates are what's called jointly and severally liable okay. for the terms of the lease. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Joint and several liability is a legal concept um, that basically says that the co-signatories to the lease are each individually liable for 100% of the damages that could arise in that relationship. Mm. So that's me attempting to break it down in plain English, and it's still uh, clear as mud. So let me try to... (laughs) I'm going to need it plainer. Break that down a little bit Can you give me an example? Absolutely. So, Ali, let's say you and I enter into a lease agreement, Mm -hmm. and we're roommates just in a standard two-bedroom situation. Mm -hmm. And then I just decide, I, Marcus Deegan, decide you know what, I don't like this apartment complex anymore. I'm just going to ditch out. And I just up and leave and ghost you. Mm -hmm. Well, under that joint and several liability clause, even if it is provable to a metaphysical certitude that the landlord knew that our arrangement was splitting the rent, you pay half the rent, I pay half the rent. Well, if I'm gone under that joint and several liability clause, you are responsible for 100% of the rent Period. Even if we're both on the lease. Even if we are both on the lease. Even if it is abundantly clear circumstantially, like Mm -hmm. we have some written email proof in which we can show the landlord knew Mm -hmm. the arrangement was a splitting rent. Yeah. If I ghost out, you're on the hook for full rent, full stop. Mm. And also, by the way, that cuts both ways. Let's say I ghost out because you were objectively the worst roommate in the world. I don't wash dishes. Hell no. (laughs) Um, And so 
I ditch out because Ali Vallarta is a terrible roommate. Mm-hmm. And then after I leave, you're able to keep up with full rent. Mm-hmm. Kudos to you. But you commit a crime on the premises. Uh, you you start dealing meth out of your apartment mm-hmm. or something, and the landlord catches you red-handed. Okay. Well, likewise, under that joint and several liability clause, if they have to evict you and then they have a right to come after you for a bunch of monetary damages mm-hmm. arising out of that eviction lawsuit. Yeah. Me, Marcus Deegan, who is never present for any of the criminal activity whatsoever, I could still be on the hook for the monetary damages that were entirely objectively attributable to you. Wow. Uh, so that's item number one is, uh, well, sometimes the phrasing goes, pick your roommates carefully. But I actually think that's a bit of an unfair phrasing. I think the more important thing is to have some sense of, okay, let's say my objectively perfect roommate is struck by lightning two days into us moving into this place. Yeah. Can I keep up with 100% of these liabilities? And if I can't, what's my backstop? And I really can't emphasize enough, these clauses are ubiquitous out of Mm. probably hundreds or possibly thousands of cases I have looked at in the landlord-tenant realm. Noted. Almost all of my friends have roommates or share a house with roommates. And so I think this is really valuable information. Can we talk about this one at the top? Because I have signed many leases in Salt Lake and this is always on it. And I've always wondered what the heck it's about, which is this sentence that says occupancy by guests remaining over three consecutive days or more than five days in any calendar quarter will be considered a violation. So basically, there's a limit on how long I can have friends stay at my apartment with me, technically. That is correct. I think everyone is breaking that rule constantly, but it's there. That rule is absolutely there. And it is... uh it's one of those things where it is tough for me as a tenant advocate to say, you know, on some sort of objective scale, how often is that clause being violated? Mm. I can tell you that uh, evictions based on a claim of having an unauthorized occupant are among the more common grounds for eviction. If you are having people staying the night too often, then the landlord can't just then give you an eviction notice saying mm-hmm. you have to get out, no cure allowed. When you're just violating one of the rules of a lease, typically speaking, that means you are entitled to a notice to comply or vacate, which is to say, is a warning shot saying, tenant, get in line with the rules within the next three calendar days. And if you're not in compliance by day four, then I, I, the landlord, will be entitled to initiate an eviction lawsuit against you. Yeah, So if I understand correctly, what this essentially means is if my brother came to visit, slept on my couch for a month, and my landlord found out that they were doing that, depending on the circumstances of my relationship with my landlord, my record of being what my landlord might consider a good tenant, it could be, this clause could be sort of weaponized in order to get me out of my apartment, or they could say, Get your brother out of here and don't let it happen again. That is absolutely correct. Okay. That one just feels like it's really lurking. Once again, it's the uh, classic contract law principle. You signed it, you bought it. And if it's buried in a brick wall of text of a lease, you're still stuck with it. Yeah. I'm I'm sure Tom Waits wasn't the first one to say it, but uh, the big print giveth and the fine print taketh away. (laughs) That's right. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, uh, 
I'll, I will, I see your Tom Waits. I raise you a Jimmy Buffett. If we can laugh, we would all go insane. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, what's next? I'm scared to ask. Um, Another one that I really, really want to drill down on uh, that I think is quite important mm-hmm. is the and once again this is this is one that is fair quite common in lease agreements across the state of Utah. We'll call it the non-waiver clause. Okay. So what that means ultimately is, let's say <clears throat> you get you you have an odd uh, paycheck cycle mm-hmm. and you don't get paid until the tenth. Of every month. Your lease says rent is due on the 1st and you only get a grace period until the 5th. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you've talked to your landlord. You've explained, hey, I don't get paid until the 10th of every month because my employer is weird. Can you cut me the slack mm-hmm. so that I can pay on the 10th of each month? This is in an oral conversation you're having with your landlord. Your landlord says, yeah, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Well, let's say management changes over. Mm-hmm. You've made that oral agreement with somebody who's gone now, and this new landlord only sees what's on the paper here, mm-hmm. that there's <clears throat> a contractual commitment you made to pay by by no later than the third of every month. You don't pay on the third, the month after the changeover in management. On the fourth, you get a pay or vacate notice. You try to say, hey, no, I had a deal with the other landlord. Yeah, well... We didn't waive that, though. Suffice it to say, you put yourself on the line for serious risk of huge liability hmm. if you don't have a written commitment from the landlord. Okay. So get it in writing, basically. Like any conversation that you might have with your landlord that in any way is different than what is in the terms of your lease, ask them to send you a revised lease or create some sort of an addendum that you both sign. Like, would that hold up? Or a simple email. Or, really, I or mean, a paper the, trail. The, 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 the no oral modifications clause means just that. But generally speaking, a writing is a writing is a writing. Mm, okay. So if it says that it can be modified by an, a written agreement signed off by the landlord... If you've got an email exchange, I think at least this is an argument I would be comfortable making in front of a mm-hmm. judge. You've got an email exchange saying, hey, thanks so much for talking to me today. Just want to confirm that this is our agreement going forward that I get to pay on the 10th. And the landlord responds saying, yep, that is what we agreed to. We're all good. Thanks so much. Got it. Okay. If I'm served a pay or vacate notice, what are my options? What, is it, what does everything look like after that? That's a great question. So ultimately, if you get served any, any kind of eviction notice... Your options are, generally speaking, what it says on the piece of paper. Mm. A notice to comply or vacate. You get two options. You either get to come into compliance with the rules Mm -hmm. or you got to get out. Mm -hmm. Now, if you get out, that doesn't mean that you've uh, lost all liability. They could still try to chase you for more than just the rent owing at a later date. Mm -hmm. So if you get a pay or vacate notice, the biggest recommendation I can possibly make is move heaven and earth to pay up within those three business days and rather uniquely to pay or vacate notices it's measured in business days rather than calendar days the reason why i emphasize that so uh emphatically mm-hmm. is because if you fail to come up with the money within the three business days and you're still there there is technically no way to force the landlord to accept your money and let you stay after that now they can voluntarily choose to accept your money mm-hmm. and let you stick around and continue being a tenant But they also, under the way the law is written in this state, have a categorical right 
to refuse your rent and say, no, we are pushing forward with this eviction. Mm. And then after you're thrown out, then they can chase you for that money later, which can be terribly confusing with for a lot of people I work with. It's like, well, they evicted me. I mean, like they, they rejected my money. Why can they come after it now? Well, it's because there is no way to force a cure of the failure to pay rent after a payer vacate notice ends. But it doesn't mean they, they, the landlord, have forfeited their right to claim that money. And that's both a matter of how the statutes are written in combination with how every single lease agreement is written. And if I'm, say I get the payer vacate notice, I contact a rent relief program in Salt Lake County, which is, there are those programs available. And I start an application with them and I write my landlord and say, I'm working on it. I'm in the application process for rent relief. Does that change anything? Legally, nothing. Rent relief application can take anywhere from a short couple of weeks to as much as three months to process through. Um, so if the landlord starts to get impatient at any point while waiting for that rent assistance application to process, mm -hmm. they can elect to initiate the eviction proceedings. Okay. A lot of my friends are renting very old homes. What is the scenario if conditions in that place turn sour, say mold or flooding? So ultimately, this is a, an issue more controlled by statute than by your contract. And under the Utah Fit Premises Act, it does nominally contain a requirement that landlords must maintain the residential rental unit in a particular quality of conditions. That is true. Mm -hmm. But the Big issue that I bump into, people believe, okay, well, there, you know, the, the, the Fit Premises Act says the landlord has to be maintaining this place in this habitable fashion. And I have golf ball size uh, chunks of fungus growing on my bathroom wall because of a water leak coming from upstairs. Mm -hmm. So I guess that means I get to start withholding rent, right? Mm. And people come under this assumption, no small part from just doing some random Google searching around online to look up renters rights mm -hmm. but they failed to narrow it down specifically to the state of utah mm. the right to withhold rent is very very state specific in the state of utah mm -hmm. you technically have a right to withhold some rent for bad conditions however it is extraordinarily narrow if you're behind on rent and then you say well yeah but there are these bad conditions so i'm going to start withholding too bad that's not allowed you have to be current on every single dime you owe to the landlord, not just in rent, but utilities, other fees that are tacked onto your lease, everything. Mm. Secondly, you have to give the landlord a very specific type of notice. Now, the document is called a notice of deficient conditions, but that does not mean that just any type of notification to the landlord. There's a form document available from an excellent local legal nonprofit called Utah Legal Services. They're edition of the notice of deficient conditions is the i think broadly considered the definitive document for invoking this right okay so don't just think that telling your landlord there's a bad condition is enough to suffice to be able to withhold rent under a notice of deficient conditions then from there the landlord gets an opportunity to cure things they get three days to take quote-unquote substantial action towards remedying the issue what counts as substantial action totally undefined in the statute, and to my understanding, largely undefined in any uh, court of appeals cases in this state. Wow. For all intents and purposes, again, the way 
I, I talk to people when they ask me questions about mm-hmm. this is in effect, there's no way to force a landlord in the state of Utah to make a repair. Very literally, you could have sewage pooling at your ankles and you can neither force the landlord to make the repair nor start withholding rent therefore. That's dark. The last question that I have for you is kind of a rumor. So this is something I hear people talk about a lot, which is very specifically put this way. In the state of Utah, if you take your landlord to court, you are responsible for paying their legal fees. Is that a misinterpretation of the contract or is that correct? Slightly. Only slightly. It is not entirely off. So once again, this is something that shows up in most every single lease agreement you'll ever see. And under statute in the state of Utah, the prevailing party in a lawsuit shall be awarded their reasonable attorney fees. So if your landlord has to take you to court and you have no defense, you have to pay their attorney fees on top of the money issues or any other money that is being demanded. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if your landlord takes you to court and you have to hire an attorney to defend yourself and you win, then they have to pay your attorney fees. But if you come at a landlord and you lose, you have to pay their attorney fees. Mm -hmm. How often do tenants win? Like roughly? I don't know that I could necessarily put a a hard numerical objective. I will say for my part, the type of work I do, it is not frequent. Yeah. The law in the state of Utah is structured in a way such that commonly the landlord is the prevailing party. There's a fairly limited scope of defenses that can be had Mm. against these things. Okay. So the source then of the interpretation that way, which is if you take your landlord to court, you have to pay their legal fees. The reason that it's so presumptive the way people say it is because these are, like you said, heavily lawyered contracts that most renters are in. And so odds are that's going to be the case because you probably won't win. You might, but you probably won't. I would say that's about accurate. Yeah. I mean, you can take your best shot at it. I've been surprised by certain cases that can't can have wins. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the single most important thing that renters in Salt Lake understand in entering into rental agreements with landlords? You know, a common question I get is, well, what rights do tenants have in Utah? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a tough and kind of abstracted question to grapple with. I don't know that I have a one clean answer or suite of answers for what rights do tenants have. I, I have a few things that come to mind, but I think ultimately the more important conversation to be having when thinking about tenants' rights is tenants' liabilities. Mm-hmm. And under the way Utah's eviction statutes are written, a tenant's liabilities can include a particular kicker that really puts a heavy weight on the scales in terms of whether or not it's worth it to you to argue with, push back against your landlord. It is so important, I think, to have access to this information and this clarification, though. And the thing that most contracts don't do is they don't give case examples and they don't lay out what different scenarios could look like. And so if you as a renter don't have the imagination of a landlord or of a lawyer, then it's hard to get a real sense of what all these 
you know, like you said, brick walls of text actually are getting at and the impetus. And indeed, if you ever do get into a dispute with a landlord, do what you can to talk to a lawyer as soon as possible and do it early. Because as I've discussed with the nature of these notices and with the way these contracts are sometimes written, there's a very, there can be a lot of very strict points of no return. So if you're having an issue with a landlord, try to get up with an attorney immediately. If you are low income, Mm -hmm. there is uh, the most excellent legal nonprofit, Utah Legal Services. They, if you qualify for their services, it is completely free and they can give you excellent advice in the first phone call you make to them if you call during their operating hours. There's also my organization, People's Legal Aid. You can find our contact information, plautah.org. There are also free legal clinics all around the state. If you do a simple Google search for the word UT courts, all jammed together is one word, UT courts, space clinics. In theory, one of the first things that should pop up on that Google search is going to be a listing of free legal clinics available all around the state, not just the Salt Lake area, all over at which you can get some advice on, hey, I'm having this issue with my landlord. How should I play this? Woof. Well, Marcus, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. It's so helpful and I'm so grateful to you. Thank you so much for having me. A little news before we go. You might remember the bill that haunted the last few hours of the legislative session. HB 11. It's an all-out ban on transgender girls participating in the school sports teams that align with their gender. After the bill passed the Utah Senate and then the House, Governor Cox said, no way, this is a bad bill and I'm going to veto it. And he did. Now, in an effort led by Senator Dan McKay, the Republican supermajority at the Utah legislature is calling a special session tomorrow, this Friday, to vote to override the governor's veto, which they can do with a two-thirds majority. And Republican House and Senate leadership seem confident that they have it. Otherwise, calling this special session would be very unlikely. Gathering legislators from around the state to vote for one thing is not just inconvenient, it's expensive. And this is not just cruel legislation. This is cruel legislation that never even got a proper hearing like most bills do. It would set up the Utah High School Athletics Association for lawsuits, and it endangers kids. Here's what you can do right now about it. Find your senator and representative's phone numbers and call them. Ask them to vote no on overriding the governor's veto on HB 11. Send them an email too. This evening, there will be a rally outside of the Capitol from 5 to 7 p.m. You can attend that as well. That's all for us today on CityCast Salt Lake. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye.